quick. Jesus is speeding toward the cross. And uh, he's really aware of it, and he's telling his disciples over and over. And as we speed toward the cross uh, with him, I'm going to take a little bit of time each week just to remind us of another text from somewhere else than the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, that foretold all this much, much earlier. This is from Isaiah 53, speaking of this very important servant that Isaiah is talking about, who's going to restore God's people. He says this about that servant. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So uh, we have reason to believe that Isaiah was talking about Jesus. And uh, today in our text, as we read through it, we will see these things happening, that Jesus... uh, He's being despised, he's being rejected, and uh, this is sort of a live-action account going on. And the question is, why? Why? Why are they doing that? And then the second question is, how? How are we still doing that? So I'm going to be reading from uh, Luke 19 and 20. If you can follow along, if you have a little electronic version, um, you can pull up a, a copy of the Bible. You can follow along with me. Even if it takes you a minute or two, I've got so many verses to read that you will catch up. So uh, I'm going to start in Luke 19, verse 11, and read for a while. But uh, a lot of things going on. I don't think this is going to be boring. Starting in verse 11, chapter 19. As they heard these things, he proceeded, he being Jesus, to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, noblemen went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, after receiving his kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him and said, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the minute from him and give it to the one that has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten. I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here, and slaughter them before me. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, and he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said, Why are you untying the colt? 
They said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had done, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It's written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Chapter 20. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes of the elders came up and said, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Why did you not believe him? If we say from man, the people will stone us, because they're convinced John was a prophet. So they answered, they didn't know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you about what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants who went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to those tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But those tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. They also beat and treated him shamefully. And they sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet a third. And this one they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the Pharisees sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people, so they watched and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Now what happens next is two accounts where they try to do this. They come and try to trap Jesus with a question, and uh, he answers both of those questions so well. This happens in verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, and they no longer dared to ask him a question. But he said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. So how is he his son? All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. 
Lord, we thank you for all this text. So much of it. (laughs) And as we look at it today, Lord, we pray you would show us uh, your goodness, your greatness. And uh, in the midst of our busyness, in the midst of our weariness, uh, be kind to show us yourself. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Before I jump further in, let me assure you, if you're doing the calculus, maybe it's just algebra, Derek typically does like 15 or 20 verses and speaks for 30 minutes. Times four. We're going to be here for two hours. Uh, No, it's going to be the same, I promise. It's going to be the same. Hey, we're on the cusp of one of my very, very favorite seasons, times of the year. One of my favorite seasons is baseball season. And, uh, but I also like basketball season and football season too. Um, Anyway, I just saw this picture uh, yesterday as a baseball fan that I found really appealing and interesting. It was a picture of what amounts to a super fan. Uh, This was a baseball fan sitting on the bleachers of a Houston Astros minor league spring training game. So, like, first of all, the Astros are just, they're always not very good. And uh, spring training, to go to a spring training game, you have to be super committed to take work off, to go to the middle of nowhere. And it's a minor league game. But here's this middle-aged guy sitting on the bleachers watching a spring training Houston Astros minor league game. And he's wearing a Nolan Ryan jersey. Now, if there's anything good about the Astros, it's Nolan Ryan. If you're not familiar with who Nolan Ryan is, I'll just introduce him this way. He's now 60 years old, but the cat played into his 40s. He threw over 100 miles an hour. He pitched for 27 seasons. He has more strikeouts than anyone in history, and he threw seven no-hitters. He was the quintessential dominant pitcher. When he was on, he was completely untouchable. Now, what's really interesting about this picture is you, as you're looking at this shot from behind, there's this middle-aged guy sitting there, dumpily, rather, in his Nolan Ryan jersey watching the spring training game, unaware that three feet to his right sat Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan, the Nolan Ryan, was sitting right beside him, and he was completely unaware. Crazy, huh? You know, you can be right next to greatness, and you can miss it. And we have a very similar kind of story right here tonight, only it's far more tragic and uh, has very real consequences. After a long time of waiting, after a long, long time of waiting, hundreds of years, uh, the people of God now have their king walk in on them. They've been looking for him. They've been waiting for him. And now he comes, and he goes largely unrecognized. Almost completely unrecognized. And some of those who hear what he's saying actually outright reject him. Now, here are the questions you have to wrestle with. If they, who were closer in time, if they who were actively looking for him missed him and rejected them, how in the world are we supposed to recognize him? Or why should we? If they who were closer and looking for him did not recognize him or accept him, why should we? How, if they couldn't see him clearly, how can we? And uh, what we're going to see tonight as we work through our text is uh, the reality that it's pretty easy to, to miss the majesty of Jesus. And it's because we, we dismiss him for his humility. This is really important. We dismiss him for his humility 
We reject him for his authority. But when you put these things together, his humble authority, it makes Jesus just the kind of king you want. I'm going to say it again because it's really the whole thing. We dismiss him for his humility. We reject him for his authority. But when you understand that he is a humble, authoritative king, it makes him just the kind of king that you should embrace. So, just two points. Uh, He's too humble for our hopes, too authoritative for our autonomy. I'll talk about these really quickly. Too humble for our hopes. Uh, Jesus starts off with a story here in verse 11. It's a story they're not expecting. And it's about a topic they're not expecting. As they enter Jerusalem, Jesus basically knows what his followers are expecting. And what they're expecting is glory, a party, the end. They've been waiting for the king to come and wrap everything up, crush the enemies, and now the banquet begins. And Jesus tells them a story here about a king who has to go away, and he's away for a while. In other words, he's preparing them for an unexpected absence. They are expecting the kingdom now, immediately. And Jesus is saying, no, the reality is you're going to have to wait. There's going to be, this, he's giving the story, this parable, but immediately they would have recognized, all of them would have recognized, that sounds familiar, because two of the kings that oversaw Jerusalem had had this happen to them in the previous 60 years. They had to go off to Rome and say, do I actually have permission to be the king? Yes, you do. And then he came back. And, and, and when, the last one, Archelaus, the people hated, so they actually chased after him and like, no, don't make that guy the king. And that's exactly what happens in the story here. Jesus tells a parable about a king who goes away to have the kingdom given to him. And while he's gone, before he comes back, with the fullness of his authority, his followers have to wait and work and be faithful. And that's what the parable is about. His followers, some of them are faithful and some of them are not. Some of them are lazy slugs. And there are those who hate him. And uh, the, the, the basic point of the story is pretty simple though. The king may seem absent. He may be gone for a long time. You might not even like him as your king, but he's still the king. And he may seem weak and insignificant, like he's never going to come back, but he's still the king. And he is going to come back, despite the unexpected absence. In the next story, as Jesus is on the verge of entering Jerusalem, uh, we see this unrecognized arrival. He's basically right on the cusp of entering what should be a grand reception now he's here. He's been talking about being in Jerusalem for a long time. He's set his course for it because he knows his end is there. And now he's almost there. And uh, what you would expect after a long period of waiting, uh, uh, this is sort of hard to explain simply, but if you go back to the Old Testament, to like Malachi, which was written hundreds of years earlier, it set their expectations. They were waiting for a king to come and make things right. They've been waiting for hundreds of years. They're waiting. They're looking for the king with hope and expectation. And he walks right into their midst, and he goes almost completely unrecognized. The disciples in verse 37 and 38, those who have been following him, they recognize who he is. They've seen his powerful works, his mighty works. They've seen him at work. They know God's working authoritatively through them. And they're saying in verse 38, these are the words of Psalm 118, This one's the king. Blessed is the king. Right here is the king. While they're doing that, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are saying, hey, would you tell your disciples to shut up? Like, they're saying things they shouldn't say. They're going to get us in trouble. And meanwhile, almost everyone else, I mean, we're talking about a couple, maybe a couple hundred disciples, followers, 
and then the religious leaders saying, you shouldn't be doing this. Everyone else is absent. There's no one there. It's a largely unrecognized arrival. The people of Israel, God's people, have been waiting for the king for hundreds of years. Here he comes, and no one's there. This should be a grand parade. Instead, to me, it feels, as I read the story, like five people playing the kazoo. <laughs> and some people saying, like, could you keep it down? Yeah, a completely unrecognized arrival. And he's coming to a people that uh, are, are unresponsive. He is coming to a people with a message for them as their king, and they're an unresponsive audience. This is what he's talking about in verses 41 to 44. He draws near, he sees the city, and as far as we can tell, he bursts into tears. The last time we saw Jesus cry, it's because one of his very best friends died. Uh, I, I don't know to say he's not emotional, um, but you know, this something about the fact that this city has remained unresponsive to him and breaks his heart. And he bursts into tears. And he's lacking their lack of response, their lack of understanding. And he says in verse 42, Would that you have known the things that make for peace. Would that you have known the things that make for peace. Very interesting phrase. And I think what Jesus is saying is, You want peace. You want peace between you and God. You assume you have it. You want peace between you and your enemies. And you want that too. But the things that make for peace are different than what you think. You think the things that make for peace are power. Like a king, the kind of king that will come and crush your enemies. But the things that this king is bringing to make for peace are different. What Jesus came to make for peace was repentance and forgiveness and confession and justice, and mercy, and compassion. That's what his whole ministry has been about. His whole ministry has been about those things. Reversing the work of evil in the world by love and justice. And they just want quick resolution. Crush it. And uh, while they're looking for this quick, glorious end to all their problems... They miss their opportunity, and Jesus tells them at the end, listen, I, need, I tell this to you, the worst possible thing is going to happen. Judgment's coming. There won't be a stone that stands in this city. And he was right. Thirty years later, Rome would come and tear this place completely down. And then, for good measure, come and do it again 50 years after that, until there was nothing there at all. Because they failed to recognize their opportunity. That's what he says in verse 44. The king has come. I've been here for three years. I've been inviting people to me. And you've not listened. They've been unresponsive. Why were they, why were they unresponsive? Why did they not recognize him? I think it's because he was too humble for their hopes. Listen, they wanted a quick, easy, clear, powerful solution to all their problems. And their problems, in their mind, were their oppressors. They wanted glory. They wanted victories. They wanted the heads of their enemies. They wanted a parade. They wanted the glory. In other words, they were expecting a completely different kind of king than Jesus was. I have to wonder, is he too humble for us? Is Jesus too humble for us? Think about how quickly each of us runs in the midst of our problems, to the quickest, easiest, what we think to be most practical solution. Really. 
I'm lonely. So, well, I could make good friends the hard way. Or I could seek to become the kind of person who's a great friend to others. That's what Jesus would have you do. And then trust that he will provide good friends for me. Or I could go and get semi-plastered in order to lower all my inhibitions because then I can meet more people. It's true. We're afraid. So that's what we do. Uh, we do this not only personally, we do this on a grand scale. We have big problems. And as a country, we seek the most expedient, powerful solutions possible. So we try to serve things. We try to solve our problems with practical solutions and politics. And Jesus comes with the long, slow, but correct answer that, hey, what really needs to change, what really needs to change people the problem, I know, I know you want your answers. The problem with your proposals is it leaves out the chief problem. The chief problem is you, your heart. You don't want to change. You want all your problems to go away in yourself and in your world, but you don't want to change. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem and says, I'm sorry, you need to change. You need to repent. And I'm here to help you do that. He is the humble king. Who comes to them offering forgiveness and change and repentance and not just crushing heads and setting things right? We're tempted to think at times that because he's absent or distant or not crushing heads and setting things right, that he is weak or absent or he doesn't care. The reality, according to these stories, is he is being humble and he is being patient to give people an opportunity to catch on. To catch on, he's a humble king who's offering them the opportunity to change. It's really important because he's also the authoritative king. And uh, one of the reasons they reject him is he's too authoritative for their autonomy. I'm going to do this part pretty quick. I said that about the last one. You should be so uncle at this point. Um, But he right away, right after this, marches into the temple... And begins to challenge the corruption there. Uh, you know, the, the center of Israel and God's people was Jerusalem. The center of Jerusalem was the temple. As you entered, this thing looked like a snow-capped mountain. Uh, it was beautiful. It was glorious. It was the highest thing in the city. It was made of gold. It was plated in gold. It was shining. And Jesus marks, marches right in the middle of this glorious center of all the things. And what he sees is the ugly corruption of it. And in verses 45 and 47, he begins to drive out those who are selling things there and says, hey, you've taken God's house, a house of prayer, and made it a den of robbers. And in short, what's happened there is Israel over time, and especially the leaders of the temple over time, have decided, hey, we've got a pretty good racket here. We can make a buck out of this, especially at the expense of the poor and the foreigners. That's what they were doing. They were, they were making money in the temple at the expense of the poor and the foreigners. And Jesus is, Jesus is hot. He's righteously mad. Uh, this is the original under armor, we must protect this house moment. He comes in with cords and whips and drives people out. And, uh, and then he begins to fill that temple with the things that are supposed to be there. In verse 47, again in chapter 20, verse 1, with good, good, truthful teaching about what God's like. Every day, Jesus goes to the temple and starts to preach and teach. And uh, what had happened is over time, the people of Israel had began to view the temple as sort of a talisman, a lucky rabbit's foot. That's the important thing where God meets with us. And because we have the temple, everything will be okay. 
And they sort of lost sight of the fact that they were missing the whole point. The temple was where they were supposed to meet with God in order to get right with God. And they were sort of trusting in the temple instead of trusting in the Lord. That happens all the time with all kinds of things. We, we easily do those kind of things. Well, the authorities don't like this, and they say, chapter 20, verse 2, Hey, uh, what in the world makes you think you have the authority to do this? By what authority are you doing these things? Why do you think you can come here and just take a whip and start blowing people out of here and set up shop and start teaching every day? And Jesus uh, follows that question up uh, by exposing their hearts. He asks them a question. You ask me a question, by what authority? I'll ask you a question. And in verses 3 and following in chapter 20, he, uh, he asks them, I'll ask you, uh, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? If you go back and read this, it's really interesting. These guys who are asked this question, the leaders, the religious leaders go away, and they quietly discuss, and they completely miss the topic. He asks them, by what authority was John doing his work? And they actually never discussed that. Did you notice that? They never discussed for one moment whether John's authority was actually from God or not. What did they discuss? Do you remember? They basically are worried about PR. They're concerned with PR. They're motivated by fear of the population. And they basically say, hey, if we say that it's from God, then they'll say, why don't you believe it? And if we say... Oh, you see them wrestling. How do we get out of this? If we say for a man, they'll stone us. Do you see how they're not at all concerned with what's actually true? They're not at all concerned with what's actually true. They're only concerned with the people's opinion. They're motivated by fear, and they're trying to keep their position, their authority, their autonomy. This is about them and keeping their place. And Jesus is exposing that to them. And then he tells a story right after this that is the ultimate exposure. He tells a story, and this is really, really a live-action parable. It's almost like me beginning to say, once there was this 41-year-old pastor who stood in front of a group of students every day with his phone, not accurately keeping time, uh, preaching a text that he probably spent more time with, and there were some people falling asleep a little bit because it was too long of a text. Like, like That's sort of the kind of story that Jesus seems to be telling, like a, a live-action parable at the very moment. And, and Jesus is basically telling a parable about the history of God's people, where God sends to his people, which is represented as a vineyard, messenger after messenger. And because those people want the vineyard, but not the owner, they want, I've said this before, the father's things, but not the father, they just kick the messengers out. They ignore them. This is the history of God's people in the Old Testament. They ignore the prophets. So what does the owner do? The owner eventually says, what do I do? I'll send my son. They'll respect him. Well, when they see the son coming, they get together and say, hey, here comes the son. If we kill him, it's ours. It's actually a really stupid logic. Um, but you see, what they want is the autonomy. They want to own the field. They want to be free of the owner. And they think, if we kill, if we kill the son, it's ours. And when Jesus is done telling this parable, the Pharisees, the leaders, the scribes, it says, they decide right that moment to kill him. Like, we've well, we got to kill this guy right now because... He, they discerned that he told the parable about them. That's what the text says. That Jesus tells this parable, and he's like, I'm talking about you. There were some guys dressed in purple right across from me that want to kill me. That's sort of what he's doing. Um, he's exposing them. They so want their autonomy. They so want to be in control, they're willing to kill him. 
Their problem with Jesus' authority is their autonomy. Their problem with Jesus walking into the temple, walking into the city, saying, hey, I have a right to be here, hey, I have a right to set things right, is they want to be in control. And this is a problem because Jesus claims to be the center, the very center. He doesn't claim to be a authority, he claims to be the authority. In the same story, he says, hey, the beloved son is sent. The, the, the owner sends the beloved son. We've heard that twice in Luke. That's, that's Jesus. God the Father calls Jesus the beloved son. And, and Jesus had talked about this temple being torn down stone by stone. And Jesus in this story says, I hate to tell it to you. The Old Testament said this many times. But there's one stone more important than all the other ones. That's the cornerstone. It's the weight-bearing foundation stone. And you want to take the cornerstone, the chief stone, the most important one, and you want to reject it and throw it out. You need to know when you do that, the whole thing is going to come down on your head and everyone's going to be crushed. That's what he says in this story. You want to reject the cornerstone. That's me. Reject me if you will. Kill me if you will. It will be your destruction as well. This is what Jesus is saying. I am the center. I am the middle. I am the cornerstone. And what he's doing is exposing their lust for control, their desire for power, for autonomy. They want to kill him. They want this so much. And uh, it shows something. It shows that they really don't believe he has the authority. Right? Think about this for just one second. This is simple logic. If they really believed he was the beloved son and had all the authority, would they try to kill him? No, they'd be scared to death, right? That he would crush you. Uh, This is the same thing as the servant in the first story. Remember in the first story where the king goes away and two servants work really hard, make lots of money, and the third servant's like, hey, I was afraid of you because you're a harsh man, so I hid the money in a handkerchief. And the the guy, the, the king, when he comes back, says, you wicked servant, I'll condemn you with your own words. You know why he can condemn him with his own words? Because that guy's a liar. He's a, he's a straight-up fat liar. If you were actually afraid that the king was a harsh man, a severe man, you would take that minna and go and work your butt off, right? To avoid his judgment. Instead, this cat, didn't, he didn't take the coin and bury it in the ground where it was safe. He didn't take it and put it in the bank where it could earn interest. He put it in a handkerchief, stuck it in his back pocket. He was reckless, he was careless. He's a liar. These guys are reckless and careless. They, they don't think Jesus is the real authority. But they're still threatened by him, and so they're willing to kill him. And uh, they fail to, uh, to, to admit his authority, to see it, and to give up their autonomy. Uh, we have that too. You know how in a fight or in an argument, the hardest thing to do, the hardest thing in an argument is to let the other person have the last word. Anybody have, does anyone in an argument love to let the other person have the last, last word? Show of hands, please. Yeah, we always want to have the last word, right? You need to know that your heart is in a battle with Jesus all the time over who's really in control, who's really in charge. Your, your autonomy versus his authority. And I want to know, in regards to your work, in regards to your relationships, in regards to your partying, in regards to the way you treat others, who, who has the last word? Is it you? Or is it Jesus?
draw things to a conclusion here. How does a king like Jesus, this humble, authoritative, majestic king who claims to be the center of everything, how does he go unrecognized and then rejected? Well, I think he's too humble for people's hopes. They want a quick, powerful resolution. And he's too authoritative for our autonomy. He he challenges us in ways that we don't like. We want to be the king. We want to be in charge. Jesus makes it really clear in this text over and over. They didn't like it, or we don't like it. No one likes it. The consequences of rejecting the person who's really in charge is never really good anywhere in the real world. You do that at work, you get fired. You do that in your classes, you fail. Uh, you do that in the army, you get discharged. Anywhere you do it, you're in trouble. In our text, Jesus says it over and over. You reject the person who's really in charge, you should expect judgment. Chapter 19, verse 27, judgment. Chapter 19, verse 43, judgment. Chapter 20, verse 16, judgment. Chapter 20, verse 18, guess what? Judgment. You reject the king and keep trying to be your own king. If this is true, if this is true and he's really the king and you reject him, you should expect judgment. A quick story. In March 1991... Was anybody alive but me? Um, Callie. Yeah. Um, it's two people. I was in high school. Um, there was this terrible multi-car collision in Surrey, England, on the M4 motorway. Uh, it was a foggy, foggy day. And uh, as car after car piled into one another at over 70 miles an hour, one of the drivers escaped his car, ran back down the road. His name was Alan Bateman. He freed himself from his car, ran back down the road to warn the approaching motorists. He was doing everything he could frantically to wave them down. At one point, certain accounts have him throwing road cones at people, trying to get them to stop in desperation. And uh, reports later on as that he was largely ignored and uh, even sort of yelled and hooted at by drivers as they continued towards the crash. In a period of only 19 seconds, 51 cars were involved in the pileup. Eventually, only a few minutes later, car fuel exploded along with the highly combustible materials from one of the vans involved in the crash. And the explosion was so bad it took four days to clear the site. Ten people were killed, 25 were injured. Pretty crazy. It's one of the worst motorway accidents in, in British history. Again, I've been struck, I heard the story 10, 15 years ago, I've been struck by the image of this guy out of his car throwing road cones in desperation at people, knowing that if they don't stop, they are going to die. If they don't stop and see him, they are going to die. Reading this story, friends, looks like Jesus coming to Jerusalem, literally just throwing road cones at people. Like, they are heading for their destruction. They don't recognize him, they don't want him, they're rejecting him. He is going to the temple every day and trying. And it looks like he's throwing road cones and no one's paying attention. Well, I want to I want to counter that real quick and leave you something a little bit more hopeful. The last couple of verses I read, and you're like, man, that was forever ago. One of those five verses of the 600 you read. Uh, at the end of the story, Jesus actually asked them a question. He asked them a question. And it's about whose son is David. They ask, how can you say that the Christ is David's son? And what Jesus is doing is going back to one of the more important Old Testament passages, Psalm 110. And saying, hey, you remember that text says about, about the Messiah, about the Christ, the promised king? It says two things. It says that it's David's son. But in that text, David says, the Lord says to my Lord. He calls, in other words, God is calling that son of David, David's Lord. Stick with me. 
That psalm is saying that the Messiah, the King, is really two important people. The Son of David, a humble human being, and God's own Son, a divine King. That's really important to keep together because that's how you end up with a humble king. That's how you end up with a humble king. Someone who has all the authority. He is God's son. He's in control of everything. And yet one who comes humbly. And it's easy to feel like Jesus here is just throwing road cones at people that won't listen. There's another way to read this text. Jesus is in control of this thing. He knows exactly what's happening. He knows what's coming. Remember earlier in the story when he's about to head to Jerusalem, he's like, hey guys, would you walk into town, take a right, take a left, there's a cult there. When they ask you about the cult, tell them this, they'll give it to you. Like, he's in complete control. He knows exactly what's happening, every detail. He's in control. And you need to know this. There's a collision coming. He talks about it over and over. It's a collision of destruction for those that don't listen. But that's not the collision that's biggest in his mind. The collision that's most in Jesus' mind is that there's a cross coming in three days. If you will, what Jesus is willingly doing is turning right back around and heading into the wreck for us. That's what Jesus is doing. In just a couple days, He's going to take the full brunt of the the punishment on Himself. That is a humble king. That's a king like no other. One with complete control and authority that we can trust, yet humble enough to come and tell us hard things about us, and who's willing to be crushed for us. Willing to walk into the collision for us. That's a humble king. That's the kind of king I think we should want. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the patience of the students uh, willing again to let a Middle 